When Adam was a junior in high school, living in New York, he got invited to this party that he was petrified to go to. The kids not only seemed more grown up, they talked about how grown up they were. And when he got there, there was no dancing or goofing around. Everyone just sat around a coffee table, about a dozen kids, casually drinking beers, just talking. I don't remember exactly what we talked about, but I just remember it was all very quiet and people would sort of nod while you were talking. And during this very grown-up party, a party unlike any Adam had ever been to, a couple got up and left the room for a while. At some point I realized that they were in the bedroom for quite some time. With the door closed. With the door closed. And, I mean, I, you know, we were 16. I'm kind of, you know, nobody was giggling. Nobody was observing this fact. Nobody was... was um, making mention of this. I mean, it was just what adults do. It was just, this is what you do at a party. After a while, the boy and girl walked from the bedroom to the bathroom, and they showered together. Then, the boy, wearing a terry cloth bathrobe, rejoined the party. And as Adam went to more parties with this crowd, this would happen a lot. A couple would go off, have sex, and then return to the party, all the while everyone acting like this was no big deal at all. At that time, did you think, okay, well, this is the way that adults act? Yeah, it, 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 it was all so mysterious. I would have kind of bought anything about those things, you know? I, mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't really... It seemed to me like this is how sophisticated, cool adults were. I mean, the, the crucial things was nothing was a big deal. Nothing was worth commenting on. Of course, why would you want to be prematurely blasé about sex? Well, part of being a kid is wanting to be a grown-up already. And throughout childhood, from a very early age, you try on various adult behaviors for size. You rehearse being an adult long before you get the part full-time. And sometimes, in these rehearsals, you just get it wrong. Today on our program, stories of kids trying to act like adults, sometimes by their own choice, sometimes because they have no choice, and what they get right and wrong. From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. At one of our program today, I was a teenage ambulance driver in which we asked the question, can it be good for you as a kid to see some things that you just don't want to see? Act two. House Husband at 12, the story of two brothers escaping Vietnam, and how one ended up doing the cooking and cleaning for the other. Act 3, the miseducation of Josh Frank, in which an average American 17-year-old explains why it's okay to ignore everything you're supposed to like about high school and start your career in the big city. Act 4, Angry Young Man, times 2, what it's like to be a teenager sent to a maximum security prison and what it's like to be an adult, working with kids like that, knowing it could have been you. Stay with us. Act one, I was a teenage ambulance driver. Mike Paternitti has this story that takes place way back in the late 20th century. I was a teenage ambulance driver. In my Connecticut hometown, people thought it might be wise to put their suburban youngsters to good use. And so, post-53, a youth ambulance service was established. 
we, the acne-plagued, gum-chewing, beer-sneaking generation to be, thought this was remarkably wise. One day, you were bumping your back wheel over the curb, nervously trying to parallel park over at the DMV, and the next, you were commanding several tons of bucking red siren emergency love, screaming like a banshee down the interstate, and everybody, everybody, was curtsying and swerving and pulling over to let you pass. You checking these strobes, dude? Adios, suckas. The post was housed in an old railroad station that shook any time a Metro North train blew by on the way to Manhattan or back to New Haven. And there we were, this secret cabal of 50 or so high school kids, girls and boys, most of us achievers of one kind or another, most of us on a path to college. Away from the post, we might drink or smoke pot, listen to Neil Young or The Clash. On a call, there was none of that. There were usually four of us riding the ambulance, an EMT, a gopher, the driver, and often an adult supervisor, though occasionally the supervisor was just a more experienced high school senior. We dressed in white button-down shirts and white pants with fluorescent orange jackets. At school, we carried big clunky pagers, and sometimes we were called from class to respond to a car accident or a stroke or whatever else might be going wrong with a human body in our town. The person responsible for our teenage ambulance service, the Post, was a celebrated man in town named Bud Doble, who had a habit of calling each and every one of us booby, and usually not as a term of endearment. What the hell do you think you're doing, booby? He would roar. Did anyone tell you we're dealing with human lives here? He kept us on the straight and narrow, our very own patent. And we, his boobies, attended endless training sessions where we learned to do our jobs with military efficiency. Our lives revolved around this old train station, cluttered with styrofoam coffee cups and our backpacks strewn in every corner. On duty until midnight, we'd hang out, waiting for a call, get pizza, flirt. We weren't expected to be at home, and the beauty of it was that all of this pizza eating and flirting and teenage goofing around was sanctioned by the selfless effort we were making on behalf of our town. There were times when you felt a little like you were getting away with something huge. Other times you weren't so sure. Once I got a beeper call to a classroom at my own school. My physics teacher, who was full of quacky bluster during the 50 minutes we spent with him each day, who took exceptional glee in scrawling a C- minus at the top of a pop quiz after you bombed, stood alone in his lab, trembling, his nose bleeding uncontrollably, bright red blood streaking his white turtleneck like Chinese characters. He seemed mortified, both by what was happening to him and by who had come to help. Later, when he was back to his healthy self, lording his vast knowledge of physics over us, I would sit in the class on a particularly grueling day of him making us feel small and flash back to that moment when he stood covered in blood. And I don't know, I'm not proud to say, it kind of helped me through. If teenage rebellion is based on the fact that adults are dangerous, that they control you and can get you in trouble, that teachers and cops and even your parents are not like you in any way but are a different species altogether, then what happens when you're put in a position where they're suddenly weak and you suddenly have the power? Can you ever go back to being a teenager again? Once late on a weeknight, I was on another call outside a bar on the main street of our town. 
When we arrived, a man was down by the shoulder of the road, struggling to get up. He'd been hit by a car. He was dirty and drunk, slurring his words. He was clearly hurt, probably had some internal bleeding, though adrenaline and booze had convinced him that he was fine. I remember holding a flashlight and shining it on him, and him saying, Get that f***ing light off of me. I'll be damned if I'm going to have the kitty docks take me away. To my surprise, he was my old swim coach, someone whose generosity and ferocity on a pool deck had shaped my early years as a swimmer. And though I hadn't seen him in a few years, he was someone I'd revered. Coach, I said, it's Mike Paternity. I was one of your swimmers. I'm not going, he said. Don't touch me. Listen, Coach, I think it'd be best if you came. I think you can go f*** yourself, he said. I was one of your swimmers, I said again, and you're hurt. He tried to focus, but couldn't. My name didn't register, and why should it have? He'd been thrown headfirst into an embankment and had a tuft of sod unwittingly stuck to his head like a sad beret. Get away from me, he said, before I make you hurt. Make me hurt? It seemed a bizarre thing to say, but I backed off. He signed a waiver that he was refusing treatment, and we left him there, broken and beginning to sob when I turned my back on him. I remember being confused by that, by his belligerence and vulnerability, by the way he was so completely not the man I once thought he was, the man I'd pinned some hope on, and some sense of my own self. And I knew that he wasn't sobbing because he'd been hit by a car or was drunk. Something else had led him to this moment, but I didn't even try to ponder what. One of my brothers, Steve, was in post too, and after I left for college, he became president, a kind of big deal at the time. Though he briefly ended up as the whitest angel, my brother was actually more of a rebel than I was in those days. Recently, I asked him what he remembered of that time. The outfits, he said, laughing. We started trading stories about the calls we'd been on. You know, the one I remember that I've had recurring memories and dreams of is this... Um, accident up uh, by um, that really bad 90-degree curve up by uh, Weburn, you know, on Hollow Tree, mm-hmm. with this mother who was driving in a VW Rabbit, and she had two twin twin boys, four years old, and uh, they were, like, kicking each other in the back or something, and so she reached back to stop them and drove right into a stone wall. And one of the boys was okay, and the other one was, was hurt really badly. He had a huge swelling in his forehead and really big and when we came to the scene I was the EMT and this this just this guy who had driven by stopped to see if he could help and had grabbed the four-year-old the hurt one out of the car which obviously you're not supposed to do because we didn't know if he had neck injuries so and he came running over to me with with this with the little boy and so I, I had you know I had to grab the kids the kid in my hands in my arms and take him into the ambulance and um you know his mother was a nurse and she kept saying just tell me just tell me what's wrong just tell me i know something i know this is serious i know this is serious so my brother had to figure out what to do there were no obvious broken bones or lacerations which made the situation altogether more ominous he suspected that there might be severe internal injuries and so they needed to get the kid to the hospital fast i remember it's like 
little fingers. He 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 was stiff, but his his hands were moving, and he he would grab my pinky, you know, and squeeze it tight. And uh, that was just pretty intense to think this 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 is up to me here. Maybe as it turned out, he he ended up dying of of I think massive massive head injuries, brain injuries. Um, and I also remember when I got to the hospital and we wheeled the stretcher off and ran him in. One of the people in the ER came out and said to me, why didn't you tell us it was this kind of injury and a head injury? We would have had the brain trauma center set up and stuff. And I was like, at that point, I was thinking, oh, my God, if if I didn't tell him something, I should have told him. And I wasted five minutes that could have saved this kid's life I I just was devastated you know I know I I told him everything that I saw you know I know I said that he had a he had a a swelling um, over his head whether or not I sufficiently flagged it for him I don't know I mean I don't know I I don't uh I felt awful. It was pretty hard to deal with for a little while. I mean, I, you know, I, I can deal with it now. That it's not something I think about every day. But I, I definitely, I definitely, you know, felt guilty that, you know, maybe he wouldn't have died or something. What's curious is that we never really talked about calls like that, not in any great detail, and never to anyone outside of the post, especially our parents. And so my brother's worst calls were bottled and stored in the cellar of his psyche, only to haunt him these years later in bad dreams. In fact, until now, I'd never even asked Steve about another incident that occurred when the two of us were at home, on a day near the end of the school year when I was a senior and he was a junior. That afternoon, I was engaged in heavy combat with my youngest brother, Rich, who was eight years old at the time. Rich had uncanny hand-eye coordination and was a merciless video game player, the supreme universal master of asteroids. I had made a promise to myself that before graduating high school, I would find a way to beat him. And by some cosmic fluke never to be repeated, I was. I was creaming him, and neither of us could believe it which is when our next-door neighbor, a woman just older than my mother, burst in. Her 75-year-old father had killed over on the lawn in cardiac arrest. I remember my first thought was, but I'm about to kick Rich's butt. And then I started outside, telling her to get Steve, who was upstairs listening to music in his room. I, You know, I could probably remember the song I was listening to if I thought. I think it was probably Bob Marley, Babylon by Bus. I remember running outside to our neighbor's father and beginning CPR. I remember something happening that I didn't expect at all. His ribs separating from his sternum and breaking easily under the weight of my palm. A muffled cracking sound. I I just remember, you know, the feel of the guy's beard on my lips. And you have, you know, pretty normal reactions you know how could i how could i possibly think a video game is 
more important or, or that I, how could I possibly be angry being pulled away from a, listening to a record to have to go try to save someone's life. But that's, you know, the, you, you definitely had those. I definitely remember having those reactions. I mean, I remember hearing that in that sort of perfect early summer afternoon, listening to the perfect music and just coming down the stairs and seeing her face and knowing that something was going to happen or something had happened bad. Sort of same feeling, almost like a little tiny bit of resentment that well, that just blew the afternoon in a big way. Um, and then feeling, you know, of course, real guilty about having that feeling later. This was the thing about the post. It represented two totally discordant and opposite teenage impulses. On the one hand, we still wanted to act like kids, but then at the same time, we wanted to be adults. We'd accepted the ultimate adult responsibility, riding in an ambulance and being held accountable for human lives. I would have been 17 years old at the time of my last serious call. It was spring of my senior year, and all I wanted was to hang out with my girlfriend, just get lost and forget every last adult thing looming on the horizon. You know, the specter of going away to college, and then after that, the requirement of finding some kind of worthy job, and the ensuing money grief, and whatever it was that adults worried about all the time. But I was on duty, getting ready to go home, actually, when the call came in. A car accident out on Pear Tree Point, which juts out into Long Island Sound. There are huge, beautiful trees out there, and a girl not much older than me had run headlong into one of them, drunk. It was a dark night. When we arrived, we couldn't find her at first. We were all out looking in the ditch by the road. And then suddenly I was at the car, what had been the car, as the whole front end was flattened. I remember somehow opening the jam front door and seeing a trapped woman head down on the steering wheel, her hair long and blonde, her body splattered with blood. And she was moaning, a low, sickly, almost reflexive moan. I remember taking her head in my hands to pull traction and lifting her back and then almost throwing up at what I saw. I don't know how to put this gently, but she didn't have a face. That is, her nose had been driven into her head, and there was a huge gash on her forehead from which something brainy was leaking, and her jaw hung half loose, and her eyes had rolled completely back, were just these white ghostly things reflecting nothing. In EMT training, you're taught that once you've begun to pull traction, you can't let go. And so I can't tell you how long I sat face to face with this woman. Even after we put on a neck brace, I held her head. For hours. And she moaned and moaned, and I too began to moan quietly to myself. The fire department was called and other ambulances with the capability to administer drugs, and the jaws of life were used to pry her loose finally. Bud Doble came too, as he often did to the bad ones. After several hours, after a huge crowd had gathered, we got her out and wheeled her to another ambulance and since I'd been with her at the beginning, I stayed with her until the end. I remember standing up on the back fender at the back door as they stripped her naked and shot her full of drugs. And I remember a stream of her blood running down the floor of that ambulance over my white Reeboks. 
Bud Doble was standing next to me, shaking his head. Tough one, he said. By morning, she was dead. When I got home that night, my dad was up waiting, and though I wanted to tell him what had happened, I didn't, or couldn't. I don't know why. I just stood for a while, making small talk, and then I went up to bed. But here's the thing I remember most about that night. Somehow the girl's parents had heard about the accident and made it to the crash site, and then they were moving toward the back of the ambulance to see their daughter, the one they'd raised and loved. Bud Doble glanced over his shoulder, knew exactly who they were, and leapt down. I remember he wrapped his arms around both of them, talked to them in a low voice, comforting them. He covered them both up and led them straight away, the three of them in a bear hug. Here was the stranger, and they clung to him like Jesus. I thought about that woman and her parents last week, when I myself was at the hospital for the birth of my first child. Already I was imagining a life for him. His first words, his first steps, his first day of school, his first bike, his first girlfriend, his first act of rebellion. I imagined what secret worlds he might occupy one day and whether he would ever tell his father about them. From our room at the hospital, we happened to look down on the ambulances as they came and went from the emergency room. And standing with my one-day-old son in my arms, I watched. I watched the paramedics wheel in all sorts of people and return with empty stretchers, joking with each other. I stood in the window with my son in my arms like a man on a beach, watching others bob in a distant ocean, diving on a coral reef. It was late afternoon, and the sun dropped down behind some low clouds, lighting the parking lot silver. I watched as an ambulance driver ran to his rig, flipped on his strobes, and floored it, off to some new disaster, to some broken body out there somewhere. It was an old reflex, I admit, but I turned my son from the window and raised his mouth to my ear just to make sure I could feel his breath. Mike Paternitti lives in Portland, Maine with family. Whoa, whoa. You know, I'm almost grown. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, and I'm doing all right in school. They ain't said I broke no rules. I ain't never been in Dutch. I don't browse around too much Don't bother me, leave me alone Anyway, I'm almost grown Back to House Husband at 12. So what if you made the most important decision of your life when you were 12 years old and for all the wrong reasons? When Antoine Wong was 12 back in 1980, living in Vietnam, his cousin was scheming up a way to escape the country by boat. It would be 36 people hidden in a tiny craft, Antoine's older brother was invited on the trip because he knew how to fix engines, which everyone figured might come in handy. And Antoine was invited, too. And he wanted to go. But for reasons that had very little to do with reality and everything to do with the way that a kid sees the world. For me, you know, having a chance, an opportunity to sort of travel, because to travel in Vietnam at that time was extremely difficult. So just to have an opportunity to leave the city maybe go to North Vietnam, because we were planning to escape from North Vietnam. I thought it would be a cool thing. And um, and then 
I thought, you know, escaping, you'll be caught. You know, this is not that easy. Oh, really? You thought you would get caught and be sent back? Yeah. You yeah. didn't actually think you were going to be leaving Vietnam? Right. Not exactly. Like, in my mind, I didn't think I would be able to. So for me, it's just sort of like, uh, you know, I love my mom. I can't be separated from her. But this is not really true. This is a game. I'm going to go and enjoy the visit and then be caught and sent back to you know, my family, you know, so, and then my mom has a totally different idea, you know, she's thinking, well, he, he's leaving, either he make it, I'll never see him again, or he might, you know, in the late, late future, uh, if he get caught, they might kill him, or, you know, the chance of being dead at the sea is great, too. So she was really petrified, you know, and she didn't want to let me go, because I was really young, and I was baby sort of yeah and then he has to sort of convince and then my brother and my whole family sort of talked to my mom and said mom look you know there's a war going on with cambodia right now they're drafting young men you know as soon as you reach like your 17th birthday they take you and um and then plus if i had stayed behind i would never been able to get ahead you know, I wouldn't been able to go to college, for example, or to get a decent job. So after a lot of convincing, um, my mom just decided. She said, okay, um, you can go, you know, it will be good for your future. Uh, but one thing she remem- I remember her telling me that she said, you know, you can have a better future and everything, but you just never find the love you know, like the love that I have for you, you know, I'm your mother. And, and you know, after that, it was sort of odd because she didn't really speak to me very much until the day I leave. It's just like it was too difficult for her. You know, she's like pretend that nothing is going to happen. Now, as an adult, you must know how, how risky it was. Is it w- one out of two people who would get onto a boat w- wouldn't, sur- wouldn't survive? Yeah, I mean, the odds of being survived is really, really small, you know. It's uh, either, like I say, the boat is tipped over, you get caught by the government, or um, you, you know, you're being attacked by pirates. Pirates? I mean, yeah, in, especially in South Vietnam. Were you, how, were you scared? I don't know if I can say I was scared. I mean, I was excited. You know, I don't think I really got scared until I was on the boat. Then reality sort of <laughs> sunk in. So what happened when you got on the boat? I got really sick. <laughs> that was the first thing. Um, and I just got really sick. I mean, I have never been on a boat going to the ocean. I've been on river boats, you know, in Saigon, no big deal. And I remember praying to just about all the saints and... You know, whom, whomever I know, just from going up to, so that I could die. Literally, I was like, just let me die. This is just awful. I want to die. And um, the first few days, we did have some food that we take with us. We thought that uh, it would take us six days to get from Haiphong to Hong Kong. But it's ended up taking us a lot longer than that because the boat broke down a lot. And also we encountered a storm. We were stranded in an island for 10 days. 
we had a little bit of food left for the island, but just barely, like maybe a few handful of rice that we make very thin soup to drink. But we managed to find like all kind of weird sea animals, and we ate those. I tried to eat grass at one point because I was so hungry, and found out that you can eat a lot of vegetation, you just can't eat grass. I don't know why. It's like it tastes horrible. You can't even swallow it. And so you had planned that it would only take six days. How long did it end up taking? Almost two months. So two months go by, and where did you end up? Well, we end up in Hong Kong. And of course, you know, they know we were refugees. We looked like we were refugees. The boat was awful. So they took us into shore, into a warehouse, um, and basically bathed us, making sure that we were free of lice and... That making sure that we had proper checkup, medical checkup. Then they take us to another camp, you know, and um, the first month or so we get some money to just get by for the first month or so. To buy food. To buy food. Right. But then after the first month you have to work and they will try to help you find job outside in Hong Kong. Of course, the job that you would be getting pays very, very little. Like I'm talking like maybe 50 cents an hour or something. Now for you, you were 12 years old. Is this yeah. the first time you had a job? Well, I didn't have to work. Luckily. You didn't have to work. I didn't have to work. But my brother did because he had to take care of me. And since, you know, like I said, we weren't really close. In terms of, like, we didn't interact that well. You know, he, I just felt kind of left out in a way, but then I felt like I had a responsibility, and that is to take care of my brother in terms of making sure he get food, he get food to take to lunch, making sure his clothes are clean. And you're talking about like having two pair of jeans or, you know, two shirts. So you have to do them daily. You have to wash your clothes. You have to cook, go to the market. Um, we have no refrigerator. I mean, you're talking about living in a concentration camp, again, with bunk bed. And that would be your room, two people. And you would hang like pots and pans and your clothes, everything within that bunk bed. And at first I was very scared. I mean, I didn't know a word of Chinese. You know, here I have to go out of the camp and say, I want a pound of beef. I want, you know, a kilo of rice. I mean, it was hard. So, I mean, I did a lot of that through pointing and hand signal. And had you, and had you ever cooked a meal before? No, I mean... <laughs> Um, growing up, I was sort of like chased away from coming into the kitchen. You know, my mom and sister would like, go, you know, go play, go somewhere. So I never really learned. So when I got there, it was like basically, I have to do it. Otherwise, we'll be hungry. We can't afford to purchase already made meal. So I would like ask people in the camp. I would watch them, uh, watch older people cook and learn how to do it. Did you did you like the uh, the independence of shopping and cooking and having this adult kind of life? Not really, because at that point, you know, all I wanted to do was to have fun. I mean, um, for me, you have to understand, like Hong Kong was new. It was kind of wow, a huge city, you know, and you are seeing sixty-story buildings, and you're seeing like all the neon lights, and you know the airplane, huge airplane flying. You know the camp was very close to the airport. You know you're curious. You wanted to go out and just check around. It didn't cost anything. You can walk. You know, play with your friend. Do Do you think it was good for you to 
have to be such a grown-up at such a young age? Uh, you know, uh, my friends ask me that question a lot, and I, I'm not sure how I would answer it exactly. I mean, I think, I guess being forced to grow up so fast sometimes just sort of, I, this is how I feel, you know, it's probably different with different people, but I feel it sort of left you feeling kind of insecure most of the time because you never feel adequately supported by your parents, you know, guiding you through different things or saying, you know, don't do this, do that, you know. And so you, I always feel like I'm a child, you know, in some way. I'm like 32. Uh, sometimes I just feel like I'm a little kid. Knowing now uh, what what happened to you once you once you left on the boat, would you make the same choice again? You know, probably not. Probably not. Is well, of course, you can never say you know what happened to you, but um, I don't know. I just feel that like if I had to do it, I probably wouldn't do it. Why? Why? I, I don't know. I just think, well, it's kind of a hard question, you know, because I had to do it, so I did it. But uh, just because, you know, I never get to see my mother. Uh, she passed away. She passed away after you left. After I left. Yeah. And this was after the year I graduated from college. I received mm -hmm. news that she passed away. Um, so I regret that. I don't think you can have everything in life. Just back to what my mother said, you know, like you can achieve all of this. You can have all the wealth, the you know, life can offer you all of this good thing. But then sometimes you have to sacrifice like a chunk of other thing, like the love that your family can give you. Antoine Wang lives in Chicago. A Catholic charity brought him to the United States after a year and a half in Hong Kong. He's never been back to Vietnam. Coming up, anger and its uses, high school and its uses, and more. That's in a minute from Public Radio International, when our program continues. American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, stories of kids acting like adults, some by choice, some because they're forced to. We've arrived at Act 3 of our program, Act 3, The Miseducation of Josh Frank. This is another story of a young person making a huge, life-changing decision about his own fate while still very young. In this case, 13 years old. Hilary Frank tells the story about her own little brother. This is what it sounds like when I call home to talk to my parents.
Whoever picks up has to go to another room so they can hear me. It's been like this for six years. This is my 17-year-old brother preparing for his future. I try and practice about five hours a day, four to five hours a day. Mom and Dad ever have to tell you to practice trumpet? No. They, like, now, these days, they have to tell me to stop practicing. Like, it, it might get to be, like, 11 or 12, and they want to go to bed, and they think the neighbors will be mad, so they have to tell me to stop. Josh is training to be a professional trumpeter. He calls the incessant practicing his insurance to guarantee he'll have the skills he needs in the future. During the week, he goes to a regular public high school. But on Saturdays, he devotes 15 hours of his day to Juilliard's pre-college program. Basically, it's like cramming everything you'd get in one week at a conservatory into one day. Josh is pretty obsessive about his horn. He brings it to school every day just in case a class is canceled. When our family went on vacations, Josh was sure to have his trumpet. Then he got to a point where he told our parents he'd rather not go on vacation anymore. A week off could be better spent practicing. Five years ago, Josh gave up being a kid to play the trumpet. I can remember telling my friends what I was going to be doing. and It was at the beach, and uh, we were rollerblading, which was like the thing I did in eighth grade. You know, we were gliding around the parking lot, and uh, and I was like, guys, guess what? I I got into this pre-college program, and some some of them didn't even know what Juilliard was. And um, then it came, well, I guess you won't really be around on Saturdays. And I was like, I guess not. You know, and it was it was difficult, like. The music was more important to me, and even even if it does involve a sacrifice, you can't. I realized you couldn't have it both ways. In the first few years of high school, Josh used to call his friends to see what he was missing. They would tell him, oh, we just hung out until three in the morning, driving around or sitting at the diner. Not very exciting. So Josh figured he wasn't missing much. When they invited him, he couldn't go. After a while, they stopped inviting him. It it wasn't until junior year that we just never saw anything of each other. This is Eric, one of Josh's old friends. They used to play an orchestra together at school. And then this year... I don't, I don't know. I I meant to call him at the beginning of end of summer, and I just never got around to it. And then, you know, I I think we might have talked once or twice. Oh yeah, we played frisbee at the beach a couple times, but then um, school started, Juilliard started, and you know, Josh gets a little consumed. Uh, it's a relationship sort of riddled with formalities, and there's really little substance left. I got together with Eric and two other kids Josh has known since elementary school, Katie and David. I wanted to know if they thought he was missing out. But like Eric, Katie and David said it was hard for them to talk about Josh. They told me they don't know him very well anymore. They all agreed. It's hard to put a label on what he's missed. All it is is a few hours of chilling time each week, 
when nothing really happens. But it all adds up. Uh, yeah, I'd say he's missing out on things, obviously, because he's not there. But if you asked, if he asked us what we did on like a typical weekend, it wouldn't be a lot of, you know, great life-changing things. But I think on a whole, um, you know, over like a long period of time, he misses out on getting closer with friends that he could. Like you know, as our curfew was sort of extended, we would stay out till twelve, let's say. On Friday nights, he'd have to say uh, at ten or something. He'd say, uh, "Okay, I'm going Juilliard tomorrow, so I'll see you guys there." So that's two hours for us to kill without Josh, you know. And eventually, that adds up to a lot of hours to kill without Josh, and eventually, that sort of uh, leads to. I think it leads to Josh feeling alienated from his friends. When Josh was in eighth grade and told me what he wanted to do, I worried about him, about what he was giving up. I thought he should have a normal high school experience, even though, like a lot of people, I hated high school. I hated it so much I left a year early. But somehow, the myth of high school is so powerful. That even those of us who despised it think that you're missing something important if you don't go. Josh goes to the same high school I did, and the time I think it's most painful for him is at lunch. It it does suck. Like basically, at every lunch period, like lunch is like the big social time during school, and um, Like you know, I don't like classes. I don't like my math class. I don't like going to that stuff. But the thing I most dread is lunch because I have to figure out what I'm gonna do for that half an hour in the past when I have sat at lunch with um, with people. It's like it's really awkward for me because um, like they're talking about what they are doing or what they're going to do. And I never feel included, which kind of separates me. And it's a t- it's really painful. So the way I deal with it is just to get into music more. Like maybe I'll practice during lunch instead of eating. I'll eat when I get home. Today, all of Josh's close relationships are with other musicians. They connect easily without having to explain their motivations for working so hard, and they have their own social scene, although it's not typical of kids their age. My friend uh, often throws parties at his at his apartment um, called sight reading parties, which is it's mostly string players and piano players who get together.、Um, And just read music, and、um, and then when you're not reading, you just hang out and have a good time and listen to the music. You're describing this this as your favorite social experience, and it's doing exactly what you would be doing if you were working in your ideal job. Totally. Back when he was little, Josh took violin and piano, 
and our mom used to set the timer in the kitchen to make sure he practiced for half an hour. He quit those instruments. It was just torture getting him to sit for that long. But with the trumpet, it's almost as if he can't help himself. I I can't explain it. It's just it it was right. It was like that. It was just meant to happen. But the, <laughs> I'm going to press you on this a little bit more. Why? What was so different about it? But there, there had to be like some difference. Was it was it because you were using your mouth or? I think it was the sound. Like just the sound that the trumpet made was. I always thought was really beautiful, and、um, it sounds really warm, and like you can really sing on it. You can, you can be the soprano,、um, or you can be just like in the orchestra and be the biggest pig. And when you're playing Wagner, just play really loud and、um, really brilliantly. Just to be a part of something like that is really special. It's amazing to adults when a 13-year-old announces he or she has made a major life decision, and then sticks with it. One of the most adult things you can do is make a choice: give up something fun in favor of something else. Though Josh says he won't really feel like an adult until he's doing his own laundry, getting his own groceries, ironing his own dress shirt before performances, living on his own. Come on, Josh. It's time to go to bed. That's enough. It's late. Hilary Frank is an art student living in New York City. I am a child. I last a while. You can't conceive of the pleasure in my smile. You hold my hand, rough up my hair. It's lots of fun to have you there. Act four, angry young man, times two. This is the story of two people, one in his late teens, one in his late fifties, and we'll start with the older man. Willie Ross grew up in Arkansas in the 1940s. Picked cotton from the time he was eight. He was a big, strong kid. And we're going to the field. I was going out there with my mother at five, six, seven years old. And、um, I had fast hands. I noticed, and because watching her, you had to gather cotton real fast because how great a cotton picker she was. And when I got twelve, I was the only kid was picking two hundred fifty pounds at twelve years old. When Willie Ross was 13, his stepfather died, and just months later, his mother died too—a spinal meningitis. And after the funeral, Willie Ross headed back to the family's house in Helena, Arkansas. When I caught the bus and went back to Helena, when I got to my address, was which was 1136 Pecan Street, I looked there and the house was empty. There was no furniture. There was nothing. One of his sisters, who was pregnant and in the 12th grade, had taken all the furniture and went to live with her boyfriend. They had moved away, and、uh, no one took me in. I mean, I, I didn't know anything, and they had their own life. And I guess 
Um, they was telling me about steel mills. Some of my family figured that I could get a job. I was big for my age, but I did not want that. Here's how he made it on his own as a freshman in high school. His sister's boyfriend helped him rent a room in town. Another sister, he says, sent him $24 a month. Of that, 12 covered his rent. He learned to budget. He watched his own clothes, made his own meals. People from church looked out for him. Boy Scouts was a big part of his life all through school. He played sports. He turned to God. And he supported himself with a series of jobs that relied on raw physical strength. He worked on an ice truck, on a beer truck, on a soda truck, carrying heavy crates of bottles. And he boxed. At 5'11", I didn't have the arm reach, but I was powerful and I was quick. So what I did, I found that people would notice me and give me hugs So if I be good in sports, beating people up. I mean, I, I thought it was crazy. I said, here I am. Nobody knows me as a person, but they love me as a violent uh, 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 animal. And I thought it was crazy, but, you know, um, fortunately, that's why I got my love because everybody's attention came to me uh, in sports. And I had a lot of hurt in my heart because when your mother died, you are angry. And you wonder why other people got mothers and you couldn't. I couldn't understand that. And so boxing, I just enjoyed beating them up. So you were pretty angry as a, as a teenager. When did that turn? I don't think it turned. I'm still fighting it. You know, every day I think about it. He played football in high school and was just as violent a football player as he was a boxer, he says. He went to college on a football scholarship, played pro ball for the Buffalo Bills, winning two championships on a team led by Jack Kemp. After that, he became a cop, and finally ended up an assistant superintendent at the Audi Home, the juvenile detention center in Chicago, which is, as far as anybody seems to know, the largest juvenile lockup in the world, sometimes as many as 600 kids behind bars, many of them full of anger, and full of anger for justifiable reasons, understandable reasons, like Mr. Ross, back when he was their age. I really was angry, and I really hurt, because there was, I couldn't understand why none of my people took me in, you know, and I had, I was a good kid. And I see these kids, it's happening to them. These kids here? These kids who locked up here at Juvenile Detention Center, it, it happened to them. And I stressed them, it happened to me. But I tell them this, set a goal, get an education. One of the many kids Mr. Ross told his stories to was Terrence Golden. Terrence describes his own life this way. Until he was nine, he says, he did well in school, things were fine. And then it all fell apart when his father died of cancer. And from there, that's like where the problems began. You know? It's been hard since then. You know, he died. You know? My brother got killed. My cousin died. My grandmother died. So it's been a lot of trials and tribulations. And then what happened in your life after that? After How did things change for you? I started to change mentally, you know. Go about things the wrong way. You know? Don't express myself holding anger. And as it build up, it's like when it's ready to go, it's like a volcanic blow. Were you really close with your dad? I was the closest person in my family I ever been close to. I was closer with him than my mother. When he died, my mother tried to bring me closer, but 
I really didn't want to grow closer. I wanted my father. And she was trying to tell me all the, she, she told me all the right things, you know. Which in, in my own little world, I thought I was wrong. Terrence started doing badly in school, didn't listen to anybody, got in all sorts of trouble, and finally was arrested at the age of 14 for murder, a gang shooting with three other guys. And once he was behind bars, he started to think about things and calm down, and he seemed to change. He befriended some adults, wrote and acted in some plays with a theater group, plays in which he and other teenagers contemplated the consequences of their crimes. He stayed at the Audi home for two years as his case worked its way through the courts. Finally, a verdict came down. He was found guilty of murder. But he made enough of an impression on the adults in the lockup that several, who rarely testify on behalf of any kids, chose to testify for Terrence at his sentencing hearing, hoping to convince the judge that he was worth taking a chance on. One of these adults was Mead Palodowski of the theater group Music Theater Workshop, who'd spent months working closely with Terrence. Over ten years, out of hundreds of kids she's worked with behind bars, she's only testified for four or five. She says Terrence was a natural leader, worked hard, had a sense of humor, got along with everybody. Terrence grieved in a way that I don't often see kids. And, you know, my criteria basically is whether I think the kid has something to offer, whether they have remorse, whether if they went back out into the world. I mean, my basic question I ask myself is would I invite this child to stay in my house? <laughs> you know, would I bring them into my house? Would I offer them a job? Would I, you know, would I help them out? And if the answer is yes, then I'll go to court. Because there are some kids that I really like who I wouldn't. Because I think that, you know, although I like them very much, if they went out on the street, they'd be right back into it. Um, but for Terrence, uh, there was a lot of us that really believed in him. Terrence also asked Willie Ross to testify on his behalf. But Mr. Ross turned him down. Liberals tend to think about cases like this one way. Conservatives think about them another. Willie Ross's thinking takes in both sides. He'll give you the liberal line. He'll tell you that the only difference between him and Terrence is that sports programs, church programs, and other positive community activities were there for Mr. Ross, and that's what saved him, and that's what Terrence never had. And I'll give you the conservative line, that any 14-year-old or 12-year-old who shoots somebody knows exactly what he's doing and should serve an adult punishment, which, from Mr. Ross's point of view, should be the death penalty. And this kid and everybody, Mr. Ross, and he asked me to go to court. I would not go to court with him. I do not go to court for murder, period, for something, you know, you know, but not violent crime. I, I found him and he found me too late. It's sad, but it happened. One of the things I tell our kids, I believe in the death penalty. Even for a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid who shoots somebody? Yes, I believe that. Because I was 12 with no, and 13, and I knew better. And I had a rifle at 9 years old. And yet, and still, I had more judgment than pull the trigger. And with all the anger I had. For years now, states have been cracking down on juvenile crime sentencing teenagers and even preteens as adults in some places. We expect young people who face adversity now to master their emotions and overcome it. Terrence was tried as an adult and sentenced as an adult to 40 years. One year ago this week, at the age of 17, he entered a maximum security prison in Joliet, Illinois. It's not like the Audi home, 
where there are counselors and classes and activities, an acknowledgement that these are kids and might be rehabilitatable. Oh, well, it's a lot different. <laughs> the officers, they different. Well, they more aggressive. They're more aggressive, you know. A lot of them ain't out to help you. You might catch a few that's out to help you, but there ain't too many out there for you. Inmates different. See, there it's more laid back. See, here, you got to watch, you know, watch continues to what's around you. you know. Did you feel safe at the Audi home? Yeah. yeah. You feel safe here? It's, it's all in the mind. It's a mind game. I can make myself feel safe. I don't talk to nobody, really. I stay to myself, so I feel safe. He's been going to church in prison. He says it's hard to stay on the straight and narrow. If he doesn't get into trouble, he'll serve 20 years of his 40-year sentence. Well, our program was produced today by Blue Chevney and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Susan Burton, Julie Snyder, and Starley Kine. Contributing editors Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, Margie Rackland, Elise Spiegel, Nancy Updike, and consigliere Sarah Val. Production help from Todd Bachman. Special thanks today to Nick Howell and Jerry Springboard of the Illinois Department of Corrections and to Larry Josephson and Demid Palodowski of Music Theater Workshop. To buy a cassette of this or any of our programs, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. Or you know you can listen to most of our programs for free on the Internet at our website, www.thislife.org, where we include all sorts of stuff we can't fit on the radio show. Thanks to Elizabeth Meister, who runs the site. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by Amazon.com. The books and music on This American Life are available at Amazon.com. Books, CDs, videos, DVDs, auctions, toys, electronic software, Z-Shops, and home improvement online at Amazon.com. Other funding comes from the Capital Group Companies, investing for individuals and institutions throughout the world and sponsor of the American Funds Group of Mutual Funds from the Ford Foundation, a resource for innovative people and institutions worldwide. And from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago, WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who just popped in, just popped his head in the door with this question. What the hell do you think you're doing, booby? I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Did anyone tell you we're dealing with human lives here? Help America. Help the world. Help and their faithful girls Listen to the voice of the soldier down in the killing zone Talking about PRI Public Radio International